Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So Holly, yeah. when I say Hindenburg, what do you think of? The first time I saw the footage right. when I was a kid and just being sort of agog at the things on fire falling from the sky. Yeah, it's pretty dramatic. It is. I feel like that that's a lot of people's some knowledge of the Hindenburg is yeah. fiery explosion, oh, the humanity. Yeah. And really none of the before or after kind of sticks with people quite that much. Yeah, I think that one chunk of footage is shown so much yeah. that it's really what imprints on people. Even if there is discussion, pre-roll or post-roll of the footage, that's not what's getting into your brain at that point. Right, You're just all... remembering those really stark black and white images. Right. It's it's drowned out by the fiery descent of this yeah. huge Zeppelin. So this podcast is publishing on the 76th anniversary of the Hindenburg disaster. It's one of those things everybody has seen and heard the footage and, you know, they've heard all the humanity and like mm-hmm. the meme that all the humanity has become. Yes. In American culture. Uh, during the 20s and 30s, people were really trying to find an efficient and reliable way to travel across oceans. And for a while, it looked like airships were going to be the way to go. Uh, you could do it by boat, but it would take you a week, basically, of your life yeah. to <laughs> go across the Atlantic Ocean by ship. Um, and passenger planes, they hadn't developed pressurization technology for commercial aircraft yet. So airplanes had to fly lower in the sky. It was not very efficient. And it was really dependent upon the weather because planes couldn't fly higher than the weather systems. So it was really looking like airships were going to be the way that people were going to get back and forth between continents, basically. Well, they were faster. They were also much faster, yes, uh, than water by a long shot. And they could carry people in pretty posh surroundings. Like, it was a relatively comfortable ride. Um, but, of course, as we know, the airship as the luxury travel icon was very, very brief. Yes. Um, because there were multiple disasters. Yes. The, the Hindenburg was kind of the, the capstone <laughs> of the long disaster history. Yes. It was huge and dramatic and captured on film. Right. Which all factored into it kind of signaling the end of airship travel. Yes. So the Hindenburg was designed and built by the Zeppelin Company, uh, or if you are in German, and please pardon my terrible German pronunciation, Luftschiffbau Zeppelin GmbH. Uh, its interior was designed by German architect Fritz August Brohaus de Groot. And it was actually named after Field Marshal and President Paul von Hindenburg, who was actually the man that appointed Hitler the Chancellor of Germany in 1933. And at one point, the German propaganda minister attempted to have it named the Hitler instead of the Hindenburg. Uh, and it did have giant swastikas on the tail. Yeah, I, th- I, I think a lot of people kind of forget that. This was a Nazi aircraft Pretty much through and through. You know, it was used in Germany before it started its transcontinental flights. It was used in Germany on propaganda flights uh, around Germany for four days, emblazoned with giant swastikas. Yeah. Um, There were internal strifes between the Zeppelin company and the Nazi government. Um, And that's one of the reasons that the investigation, which we'll talk about in a bit, went on for so long. Uh, the Zeppelin company started construction of the Hindenburg in Friedrichshafen, Germany, 
1931. It was the largest rigid airship that was ever built. It was 800 feet long, more than 800 feet long, which almost as long as three football fields. American football fields, <laughs> for those yeah. of you who live elsewhere. Um, it was powered by four diesel engines, and the frame was filled with 7 million cubic feet of hydrogen gas contained in 16 shells inside the ship. Um, these, like, cells, they were like big bags, and they were coated with gelatin so that the gas would be less likely to escape. Uh, and they also, the... The, these rigid airships, including the Hindenburg, also used water as ballast when trying to negotiate exactly how high it was flying. And just so people have a sense of the kind of modern differences, because there are still some airships. We see like the Goodyear blimp flying over sports events. Um, today's blimps are really balloons, but the Hindenburg was truly a Zeppelin because it had the rigid interior frame um, that gave it that characteristic shape. And that frame was made of duralumin, which is an alloy of aluminum, copper, and other metals. It's possible that this duralumin that was used in the Hindenburg came from the wreckage of a previously crashed Zeppelin, the British R-101. That had been destroyed in its own fiery crash in 1930. It's on the record that the Zeppelin company bought the Duralumin, but it's a little unclear as to whether that particular Duralumin wound up being used in the skeleton of the Hindenburg. And regardless of whether parts from uh, the R-101 crash made their way into the Hindenburg, uh, that R-101 vessel is actually the reason the Hindenburg was so very big, because the crash of that previous vessel was actually pretty smooth. Um, survivors didn't feel a lot of impact, but almost everyone on board died after it caught fire. It wasn't the impact, but the fire that actually got them. Uh, everyone reached the logical conclusion that using highly flammable hydrogen to keep an airship afloat was a terrible idea. Hydrogen was to be replaced with helium, but helium is, of course, heavier than hydrogen, So helium airships consequently had to be bigger to hold more of the gas to compensate and have lift. The problem arose when Germany didn't have its own supply of helium to be filling up these airships. The United States had plenty of helium, but was really just not inclined to hand over lots of helium to the Nazi government. So since the Germans couldn't get enough helium to fill the Hindenburg, they had to go back to using hydrogen instead. So... The Germans couldn't get enough helium to fill the Hindenburg, so they had to go back to using hydrogen instead. And extreme care was taken inside of the Hindenburg to prevent sparks from igniting the hydrogen. There were ventilation systems on the inside to to vent any any hydrogen that did escape. Um, Inspections would be performed by people who were wearing asbestos suits and little felt shoes so they didn't make sparks. Uh, All of this to try to cut down on the risk of a giant explosion. And the outside of the ship was covered in a skin that was made of cotton that had been coated with a paint, which was also called dope at the time, to make it waterproof. And that dope contained iron oxide and aluminum powder, which combined will form thermite. Thermite burns really, really well and at a very high temperature. So it was not really the best planning and... (laughs) thought process to cover an entire dirigible that is containing highly flammable gas with it. Right. Let's have a highly flammable gas contained in something that is also highly flammable. Highly flammable. 
there were lots of measures taken to try to make things safer, but obviously that they could not account for anything, for everything. So if you look at pictures of the Hindenburg pre-disaster, you'll see little slits near the bottom of it. These are windows that were looking out from the passenger areas, and they were in the belly of the Zeppelin with the passengers on the upper of two decks that were in the, the bottom of the craft. And then the little cabin that you can see near the fore of the Hindenburg, which is on the underside, is the control cabin. And that contained the bridge, the navigation room, and another observation area. Traveling by Zeppelin was supposed to be the height of luxury. And in this case, the height of luxury means that you had a windowless interior stateroom that measured 78 by 66 inches. That contained a couple of bunks, a wash basin with hot and cold running water, a writing desk, and the service of a room steward who would come and help take care of you. So really, the the passenger accommodations in a big ocean liner probably would have been more comfortable and more spacious and better outfitted, but that trip would have taken a whole lot longer. So comparatively speaking, since it would only take you two days to get across the ocean instead of an entire week, that relatively austere, tiny space was not too bad. It was the trade-off that you made. Yeah. Saving you a lot of time. Uh, and in addition to the cabins, passengers also had access to several common areas. So they weren't stuck in those tiny no. spaces. And this is really the, these are the things that you would see photos of as, as the luxury experience. Right. Were these common areas. There was a lounge room with a grand piano. And that piano was actually made of the same aluminum alloy as the ship's frame, uh, and covered with a pigskin to be lighter than a traditional grand piano. Uh, although that piano was not part of the historic and tragic final voyage. Apparently not. Uh, it, the ship also had a reading and writing room, a dining room, and a promenade with slanted windows where you could get a view of the world below. There was also, and this one kind of befuddles me, a smoking room. Right. Uh, so <laughs> you have all of these explosive, dangerous things, which you've taken great care to prevent any sparking happening adjacent to you. And then you're like, oh, but you can light up. We have a lounge for you. Put some put some active fire there in the hands of the passengers who theoretically were not trained right. to handle flammable substances. So here's the care that was taken in the smoking room so that the smoking room was not the undoing of the entire craft. Uh, it was a pressurized room. So it was, it maintained pressure inside the room so that when you open the door, any hydrogen that was around would not get in there. Um, there was one electric lighter that was used to light all things that were going to be smoked in the room. And passengers were required to hand over any matches or lighters that they had on their person before they embarked. So there was this one place where people could smoke if they chose, but the pretty strict requirements of keeping that room a safe place that was not going to light the whole ship on fire. I'm still befuddled by it. I really <laughs> have such a hard time wrapping my brain around why you would be like, that's cool. Well, and it's, it reminds me. And some me, of it's just cultural. Like, you would not have a traveling vessel without a space for that. Right. Well, when you think about how still on aircraft, uh, there, there is the no smoking sign. We're still having the no smoking sign on airplanes, which for those of us who have been flying mostly in recent years... That seems weird that there was ever smoking on airplanes. Oh, I remember smoking on airplanes when I was a kid. Yes. Um, it seems I'm, like a similarly terrible idea. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but again, not filled with hydrogen. My mother smoked, and I remember her, like, when I was traveling when I was quite young, you know, 
lighting up on the plane. And now it's just so bizarre to me to even contemplate that we did that. Right. But so, yes, the whole room with extreme safety precautions set aside for set aside for smoking. So along with the crew quarters, uh, which were very small bunks, like you would see on an aircraft carrier, the lower deck, which was basically in the belly of the Zeppelin, uh, contained the galley, the cruise mess, washrooms, and other necessary facilities. So while everyone remembers the final flight, the service, the Hindenburg had a service history prior to that. Yeah, that was not its first flight, which some people I have found when talking to them, they think it only flew once. Right. But it really had a, a lot of air hours. Yes. A lot of safe air hours without incident before <laughs> yeah. this happened. Um, so apart from the four-day propaganda flight in Germany and lots of test flights in Germany, the Hindenburg made its first transatlantic voyage in 1936. It flew from Germany to Rio de Janeiro, and this was a round trip that departed on March 31st and returned on April 10th. And Commander S.E. Peck was on board as an official observer from the U.S. government uh, since the plan was for the Hindenburg to potentially provide service between Germany and the Naval Air Station in Lakehurst, New Jersey, with connecting service through American Airlines, which I did not know prior to prepping for this. Yeah, it was a commercial service that that was, you know, meant to carry passengers. That's pretty much what it was built for, was to carry passengers between Germany and the U.S., Lakehurst was the United States' main airship station. It's where America's first airship, the Shenandoah, took off on its maiden voyage. And it's also where a really famous Zeppelin, the Graf Zeppelin, started and ended a trip around the world in 1921. Um, In addition to that round-the-world flight, the Graf Zeppelin was in service for nine years. And in that time, it made 590 flights, including 144 ocean crossings. Also on board was a Dr. Hugo Eckner, who was a German aeronautical engineer that had worked with Ferdinand Count von Zeppelin on the development of airships. Eckner was director of the Zeppelin company at the time. So people with knowledge about Zeppelins were there. Yes. So this, it out. <laughs> this first trip across the ocean uh, wound up being the subject of kind of an FYI memo to the Secretary of State. Um, Peck reported to Hugh Gibson, who passed it up to the Secretary of State, that he had had several conversations with Eckner about the Nazi government's decisions surrounding the Hindenburg while crossing the ocean. Uh, essentially, what Peck was letting everybody know was sort of the history of, of why uh, Eckner seemed to be falling out of favor with the Nazi government. And it had to do with basically his trying to put the safety and quality of airships ahead of the Nazi government's desire for propaganda. There's a much bigger story there that maybe will be a subject for a future podcast, but it really could be. It's a whole intrigue. Yeah. Uh, a lot of gossipy drama about yeah. the, about, about the Nazi government and the, the various people involved with airship design. So the Hindenburg's first journey to Lakehurst, uh, which was the trip it had really been designed for, took place uh, in May of 1936 from May 6th to May 9th. And aboard it were dignitaries, aviators, famous people, the media. I mean, it was a big publicity event in many ways. Right. It was it was one of those things where you had a carefully selected passenger list of notable people. Yeah. And this kind of big media event. Before the final tragic journey 
The Hindenburg had made 10 round trips between Germany and the United States, carrying 1,002 passengers, along with mail and other cargo safely. It had traveled for more than 200,000 miles. But of course, we know it did have a short life, really. So then we come upon the final voyage. Yes. On May 3rd, 1937, the Hindenburg left Frankfurt at 7.16 a.m., This was the ship's return to flight after being refitted over the winter, which is why there were media waiting for it to arrive in Lakehurst. There were 97 people on board. 36 of those were passengers and 61 of those were crew. The Hindenburg was running more than 10 hours late because of thunderstorms. The weather at Lakehurst had been bad enough that the ship had flown to New York City to give passengers a nicer view uh, while waiting for the weather to clear up so they could land. So landing the airship required the captain to very precisely balance the ship's hydrogen with its ballast to level it off at the right distance from the ground. And then 200 very strong men had to grab mooring lines to bring it the rest of the way in. So this would have been challenging even in great weather. Uh, Airships had been known to catch a gust of wind and sail upward, leaving the ground crew to either choose between hanging on and hoping for the best or letting go and possibly falling to their deaths. So uh, it's very tricky to land an airship is the bottom line there. Yeah, as much promise as people thought these had for for trans-oceanic flight, they were pretty dangerous. (laughs) Yeah, they had a, a lot of big obstacles that you had to overcome with each flight. Right. So at 7.21 p.m., as it reached its mooring mast and its mooring lines touched the ground, a fire started near the rear of the Hindenburg. It was still high off the ground at the time, around uh, or about tw- 200 feet up. And some people aboard knocked out windows and jumped off catwalks in the hope of avoiding the fire. So they knew they were trapped and they wanted to just take their chance on jumping. Right. The entire airship burned in 34 seconds. The ground crew, which was made of both civilians and Navy men, first rushed away from the falling wreckage. And then as the... As the Hindenburg made it to the ground, they ran back in to try to pull survivors away. And in the end, 36 people were killed, including one member of the ground crew. That was one of the things that that had never stuck with me, that there were actually a lot of survivors of the Hindenburg. Me too. I think, again, it's one of those things that we see that brief piece of footage and we hear the oh, the humanity and it's always touted as a huge tragedy, which it was. But it kind of leads to the conclusion that everyone perished. It doesn't look like something that people would survive. But there were really a lot of, albeit very badly injured, but there were a lot of survivors uh, of the of the disaster. Herb Morrison was recording radio coverage of the landing for the Chicago station WLS. And he is the person who uttered the famous, Oh, the Humanity, which became part of the first radio report ever to be nationally broadcast by NBC. There's always been a little bit of mystery about what caused the fire. And it was an inherently difficult disaster to investigate since the whole thing burned down to the skeleton and the ground crew, the survivors, the media and others had really trampled the entire scene trying to get people out of there and also get away before the military could really establish a perimeter for investigation. There was a pretty extensive investigation at the time, which was driven both by the disaster itself and the fact that the airship belonged to Germany. There was a lot of speculation about whether it had been sabotage or a deliberate attack by either people who sympathized with 
uh, the Jews who were living in Germany or anti-Nazi groups. Uh, there were a lot of people who would have had cause to make a Nazi ship a target. And so there was a lot of investigation into whether it had been a deliberate act. There were hundreds of pages of FBI documents that were declassified in the 80s through the Freedom of Information Act, and you can read them all online. The uh, general agreement is that a spark from somewhere ignited the hydrogen gas and that the Zeppelin skin, which we've already said was also highly flammable, accelerated the the burn. And that's why it just kind of went up in a pretty quick flash. Right. One of the most recent refinements of this static discharge theory came about in March of 2013. Jem Stansfield, who's a, Brit- a British aeronautical engineer, theorized that the ship had become charged during the electrical storm that it was sort of skirting the edges of, and that when the ship got to its moorings, it became grounded, and that's the spark that resulted uh, ignited a leak of hydrogen. Um, that's kind of different from the other, or maybe it was a spark of some kind of machinery on board, or a loose wire, or some kind of short circuit somewhere. The general consensus is a spark from somewhere. We know it was a spark of something, but they've never uh, conclusively identified what. Right. Or found clear evidence that it was sabotage. So I think this will probably be a mystery with many theories forever. Yeah. There's also a Mythbusters episode where they make a model of the Hindenburg uh, to try to recreate it. And it burns much like the real airship did when covered in the same paint mixture and when it's filled with hydrogen. But when they did the same experiment without filling it with hydrogen, it did not go up yeah, so the, quickly. The question was kind of, was it really the paint that was the problem? And the, the answer in that experiment was no, that the paint by itself does not burn nearly as quickly as the paint with this huge source of hydrogen fuel underneath it. Yeah. And that really, uh, that tragedy put an end to the concept of commercial airship travel. It really shut down that potential industry. Yeah, it had already had a pretty... Uh, a, a pretty rocky history before that point. While Germany had been using Zeppelins pretty successfully for a long time, um, it had used Zeppelins for military purposes during World War One. although the Treaty of Versailles put a stop to that. Um, the German government had been using it for commercial purposes after the war uh, without a lot of horrible things happening. But other nations were not quite as fortunate. Um Some of the disasters that happened prior to the Hindenburg were that in 1921, the U.S. Navy's ZR-2 broke apart and burned, and 62 people died. And in 1923, the French airship Dixmude disappeared on its way to Africa. In 1925, the Shenandoah, which we talked about a little earlier, broke up during a storm, and 14 people were killed. Uh, in 1930, the R101 of Britain, which we discussed earlier, uh, the one whose duralumin may have been used in the Hindenburg, caught fire after an emergency crash landing and killed 47 people, including many British airship experts. So they really lost like a brain trust of knowledge about airships. Right. In 1933, the USS Akron, which was a military airship of the U.S. Navy, crashed into the Atlantic Ocean and 73 people died. And the Akron sister ship, the Macon, crashed into the Pacific in 1935, killing two people. So there had been pretty much an airship disaster every couple of years before the Hindenburg. And the Hindenburg, with its dramatic news coverage that was just so startling to look at, was really the final straw in the public's mind about whether they were going to ever get up in one of those things. 
The U.S. Navy continued to use the station at Lakehurst as an airship station for anti-submarine blimps right up until the end of World War II. And Germany continued to use Zeppelins for propaganda and transport through World War II. But the Zeppelin airship works in Germany were destroyed by the Allies during the war, uh, and they weren't really rebuilt. So that ended German development of Zeppelins for many, many years. Uh, Zeppelins aren't completely gone, though. Zeppelins started being manufactured in Friedrichshafen at German company ZLT Zeppelin Luftschifftechnik in 1993. And these Zeppelins are semi-rigid and they use helium, unlike their rigid and hydrogen-filled Hindenburg. We mentioned the Goodyear blimp at the start of this podcast. That's actually going to become the Goodyear Zeppelin in 2014, following an announcement in 2011. So we will see things that may visually resemble a little bit the Hindenburg flying through the sky, but no longer potentially fiery catastrophes waiting to happen. Yes. Hopefully history has taught us enough (laughs) that modern engineering has found safe ways. We're not putting hydrogen in things that are going to fly through the sky. That sounds like a good plan to me. Yeah, it struck me as I was researching this that the the Hindenburg and the Titanic are stuck together in people's minds as these disasters that happened in kind of the same era of history, like not immediately next to each other, but reasonably close close together. There's like a 20-year gap. There's like a 20-year gap between them. But they're both, they have both this air of, in hindsight, of course, you would not want to go through iceberg-infested waters in this giant ocean liner. And of course, you would not want to fill something flammable with hydrogen and then fly it across the ocean. And and then add to that the fact that both of these were supposed to be pretty luxurious experiences, yeah. unless, unless you were in steerage I, on the Titanic. I think that's a lot of why they get looped together, yeah. uh, is because they were both kind of going to be the new era of travel for the times that they were uh, launching. Yes. So. so that's the story of the Hindenburg. And I believe you also have listener mail for us. I have two pieces of listener mail for us. Both of them are about our recent episodes on Loving versus Virginia, which we have gotten a lot of great mail about. Yeah. And a lot of great feedback on. So thank you, everyone, for all of that. Um, this first one is from Cameron. And uh, Cameron says, I wanted to write in since I just listened to your awesome podcasts on Loving versus Virginia. I recently went over some of this case with my students. I teach high school history. It came up when I was also reviewing the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments with them when we wrapped up Reconstruction. Though the language of the 14th Amendment states, quote, No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States to reinforce the equal status of African Americans, including recently freed slaves. It's important to note that Section 2 of this amendment also states, Representatives shall be apportioned among the several states according to their rep- res- their respective numbers, counting the whole number of persons in each state, excluding Indians not taxed. The mention of Indians is important because the 14th Amendment, while making allowances for 4 million plus new citizens, i.e. freed slaves, does not take Native Americans under the same protection. This is clear when the country expands westward in the late 1800s and reservations are assigned to people with no apparent claim on the land. Native Americans are conveniently not considered citizens, which makes it much easier to, quote, ask them to move off their land so pioneers can have it. I wanted to bring this up because I teach high school in an area that is classified as the urban core. The majority of my students are definitely under the minority classification on the census. 
I was so proud of my students for immediately taking note that forcing tribes off their land was just as unfair as telling blacks they don't count as people. That in both cases, an entire group of people are being judged and persecuted based on being different than the whites in charge. So thank you, Cameron. Such a good letter. No, it's a great letter. So number one, it's a great letter. Number two... Uh, it was pretty startling to me that zero of the things that I read while researching that podcast referenced the incongruity between Section 1 and Section 2 of the 14th Amendment. Yeah. Like, none of them got into it. I feel like that's how American history works often. <laughs> I mean, like... I don't think that's exclusive to American history, but it does happen a lot. Yeah. You know, it's kind of um, compartmentalized. Right. It's totally... And it's sort of like, and then... We gave rights to these people, sort of leaving out not the other people. everyone else who yeah. did not get rights. The other, uh, we got several, so we may have other Loving versus Virginia later, letters later. But the other one that I wanted to read today is from James. He says, I've listened to your most recent podcast about Loving versus Virginia. As a history buff who lives in Virginia, I was surprised that I have never learned about this landmark decision back in school, despite the fact of at least one year of public schooling is dedicated to Virginian history. What makes this even more surprising is that I actually live, actually live in the northern Virginia area, which in part due to its close proximity to D.C. is one of the most racially diverse areas in the country now. I can't imagine what it would be like if interracial marriage was still outlawed. Also, when I was listening to the second part of the episode, I realized that the title of the case reminded me of the old tourism slogan, Virginia is for Lovers. I was curious if you knew if the decision had any bearing on the creation of the slogan. The phrase was created and first used in advertising by a Richmond-based advertising company called Martin and Waltz. The slogan was first used in advertising in 1969, two years after the court decision, so it would still be fresh in people's minds. I did some quick internet research, and the only thing I could find that directly referenced the connection was an article from last year that went over the history of the slogan. And according to the current president of the ad agency, there is no connection. Still, it wouldn't surprise me if there was a connection and the ad agency just didn't want to advertise it for fear of creating controversy. Still, it does seem like other people have noticed the connection, since when I was checking the history, I found a book about the trial from 2004 titled, Virginia Hasn't Always Been for Lovers. So I did some research on this also. I was hoping to go look back uh, through newspaper articles from the 60s to see how much coverage there really was of it. Like, is this a name that would be in people's minds the way, like, Doma is in people's minds currently Mm -hmm. because of the cases that are before the Supreme Court? Uh, Unfortunately, my newspaper database did not go back that far. But I found a couple of other... Uh, articles that were about that particular slogan on various anniversaries of its creation. Um, and the story that I have found several times from several different sources is that uh, a copywriter named Robin McLaughlin came up with a concept that had lots of different ads that was Virginia, like Virginia is for history lovers, Virginia is for beach lovers, Virginia is for mountain lovers. Um, and everybody sort of decided that was too complicated and too narrow for each ad to have a different Virginia is for bloody blah lovers. Um, and then somebody said, what if we just said Virginia is for lovers? And everybody loved that. And the first ad mentioning the slogan ran in the 1969 issue, March 1969 issue of Modern Bride. That was the first place it was ever used. 
Huh. Yeah, it was. Presumably um, pitching it as a honeymoon destination. Yeah. Well, it, it was, uh, it was because the state had done some research and realized that most of the travelers vacationing in Virginia were 50 years old or older. And the state was like, if we are going to make tourism money, we need to bring some younger people here. And so this was part of an effort to attract younger people. Um, a lot of people who worked on the campaign have pointed out that it was kind of racy at the time. But I didn't find any that were from people specifically saying, oh, and then also the Supreme Court case. Yeah. So I think it's going to be in the probably not. Um, if it was intentional on the part of the copywriter, uh, that I think was something that flew under the radar. Yeah, we don't but, have a record of that yeah. being an intent. Yeah, and the people making the approvals of it did not have that in the forefront of their minds, or I think they probably would have said no, given that Virginia was on the losing side of that case. Mm. So, yes. One last thing. Yeah. Uh, we have lots of new YouTube channels from many of our... Oh, we sure do. Our, our, our sister been, and brother colleagues here. There's been a lot of busyness. Yes. So if you go to YouTube, you can see all kinds of awesome new videos from stuff mom never told you, stuff you should know, stuff to blow your mind, and stuff they don't want you to know. So you'll be seeing links from us to those things. Uh, and they're fun. They are very fun. They're really fun. I watch stuff my mom never told you at lunch every day, but I have to finish eating first so I don't choke on my food. Or spit on the screen. Yes, yeah. while laughing. <laughs> If you would like to write to us, you can. We're at historypodcast.discovery.com. We're also on Twitter at Missed in History and on Facebook at facebook.com slash historyclassstuff. You can find our Tumblr at mistinhistory.tumblr.com and we're on Pinterest, too. If you would like to see some photos of the Hindenburg before and during and after its horrible disaster, we have a brand new image gallery on our website that is of Hindenburg pictures. So you can search for that at our website and find that and a lot more at our site, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. This episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by Audible.